You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to the 75th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week, we started to look at the ordeal of Brigadier General Charles Stone, and in connection with that, we also spent a bit of time talking about the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. This week, we'll continue with General Stone's story. We've already mentioned how Stone earned the enmity of two powerful Republicans, both from Massachusetts, Governor John Andrew and Senator Charles Sumner. Sumner would use his influence with the Committee on the Conduct of the War to ensure Stone's downfall. After its creation in December 1861, one of the first items on the Committee's agenda was investigating the disastrous federal defeat at Ball's Bluff. The officer most to blame for the debacle, Colonel Edward Baker, had been a sitting U.S. Senator and a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln. Baker was killed during the battle and turned into a martyred hero, so the committee's search for a scapegoat for the defeat settled upon Baker's superior officer, Charles Stone. And so, unfortunately for Charles Stone, the committee's desire to assign blame for Ball's bluff and Senator Sumner's wish to settle a personal score coalesced, and the result was a travesty of an investigation. Stone never really had a chance. Between December 27, 1861 and February 27, 1862, the committee examined 39 witnesses, few of whom had actually been present at Ball's Bluff. Two of the witnesses were men with personal grudges against Stone. One was an officer who had already been cashiered, and the other was an officer who would be cashiered in May 1862. Although both had been disciplined, quite rightly, by Stone for various offenses against military discipline, the committee nonetheless allowed both men to testify against him. Both men went so far as to question Stone's loyalty to the Union and to claim that he was a secret secessionist. In fact, the committee members asked witnesses leading questions, which encouraged them to second-guess Stone's decisions and to question both his competence and loyalty. Not a single witness could give any actual direct evidence of Stone's disloyalty, but Ben Wade and his colleagues on the committee refused to be deterred. Even hearsay testimony was treated as legitimate evidence. The committee members had convinced themselves that the disaster at Ball's Bluff had been no accident, and they only gave weight to evidence that confirmed their suspicions, that blamed the defeat on Stone, and painted a picture of Colonel Baker being a victim not of his own rashness, but of a betrayal by his superior officer. 
On January 27th, three of the committee's members met with the new Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, to present the evidence against Stone. The next day, January 28th, Stanton ordered George McClellan to relieve Stone of his command, arrest him, and hold him, quote, in close custody until further orders, end quote. Although there's no record of what transpired during Stanton's meeting with the committee members, it's certainly no coincidence that the very next day the Secretary of War issued an order for Stone's arrest, even though Ben Wade later claimed the committee had nothing to do with it. At any rate, by this time, McClellan suspected that Stone was merely a surrogate for the committee's real target, himself. But nevertheless, to his credit, McClellan did not immediately carry out Stanton's order. Instead, he went to the committee to argue that Stone be given the chance to answer the charges against him. The committee agreed to the General-in-Chief's request, and Stone appeared before it on January 31st. That was actually the second time Stone had appeared before the committee. He had first testified on January 5th, but at that appearance he had pretty much only repeated what was already publicly known from his report of the battle. Stone didn't divulge much beyond that because at that time, although McClellan had issued a statement clearing Stone of culpability for the debacle at Ball's Bluff, he also ordered Stone not to reveal anything in his testimony before the committee regarding plans or orders from McClellan's headquarters. This was probably, one, because McClellan didn't want the details of his half-baked plan to capture Leesburg to come to light, and two, because the general-in-chief no doubt resented the meddling of civilians in the conduct of military operations. Anyway, during Stone's second appearance before the committee on January 31st, he was not permitted to read any testimony or confront any witnesses. Instead, Ben Wade merely summarized the case against him, saying there was evidence, quote, which may be said to impeach you, end quote. Stone could only repeat that the escalation of the fight at Ball's Bluff had been made at Baker's discretion, and that as for his, Stone's alleged disloyalty, he said, quote, that is one humiliation I had hoped I never should be subjected to, end quote. Stone pointed out that were he a traitor, he could have easily assured the fall of Washington during the dark days of the secession crisis when he was in charge of the Capitol's defenses. After Stone's second appearance before the committee, Wade touched base again with Secretary of War Stanton, and Stanton reminded McClellan that the order for Stone's arrest still stood. A week later, when Alan Pinkerton provided McClellan with some further, extremely dubious information regarding Stone's supposed sympathies for the enemy, McClellan seized upon it as a way to resolve the touchy situation without further damage to himself or the army. That night, February 8th, as Stone returned to his home after a meeting, he was arrested by his old friend, Brigadier General George Sykes, and a squad of soldiers from the 3rd United States Infantry. As Stone approached his house, Sykes greeted him and then said, Stone, I have now the most disagreeable duty to perform that I ever had. It is to arrest you. When Stone, in utter astonishment, asked why he was being arrested, Sykes replied that he had no idea, but that the order came from General-in-Chief McClellan himself. 
Sykes allowed Stone to see his wife before taking him to the Provo Marshal headquarters. The next morning, Charles Stone was sent to Fort Lafayette in New York Harbor, where he was to be imprisoned. He was escorted to New York by a lieutenant of the 3rd U.S. Infantry, and through a mix-up in the travel arrangements, Stone actually had to lend the lieutenant money to purchase their tickets. The story of Stone's arrest made headlines. Secretary of War Stanton leaked enough information to the press to leave them no doubt that the affair involved disloyalty. Many Republican papers were exuberant at the news of Stone's arrest, since by that time they believed disloyalty existed in the officer ranks of the Army of the Potomac, and that that accounted for the Army's inaction and lack of battlefield success. The New York Daily Tribune proclaimed, quote, The trumpet has sounded for the advance of our armies, and the knell of traitors within already tolls, end quote. Democratic newspapers, on the other hand, were skeptical of Stone's arrest, sensing a partisan motivation behind the affair. The New York Herald characterized the arrest as a tragedy and suggested the entire case was really aimed at smearing McClellan. Stone's arrest caused a great deal of concern within the Army of the Potomac. George Meade wrote to his wife, saying, quote, I must believe Stone is the victim of political malice and that he will be vindicated, end quote. Another general, Samuel Heinzelman, simply denied that Stone was capable of the disloyalty with which he was charged. In attacking and discrediting Stone and playing the treason card, the Committee on the Conduct of the War certainly caused Union Army officers to wonder if the overly zealous politicians in Washington would resort to the same explanation for every military setback. Indeed, it seemed hard to avoid the conclusion that Stone's arrest and imprisonment were meant to send a message to the Army's officers. Meanwhile, Stone and the lawyers he had employed tried in vain to ascertain the reasons for his imprisonment and the nature of the charges against him. The Articles of War required an officer ordering an arrest to file charges within eight days, but when that date came and went, and Stone and his counsel requested copies of the charges, they met a blank wall. As the weeks passed, it became increasingly obvious that no one in Washington actually wanted Stone charged and brought to trial. To the Committee on the Conduct of the War and Secretary of War Stanton, it seemed Stone was merely a pawn in a larger game. As long as Stone was helpless and imprisoned, he served as a threat to generals who might lack the heart to engage in the kind of hard war the committee and Stanton believed was needed to punish the South for secession and to destroy the slave power once and for all. Put quite simply, Stone in prison served as an object lesson for officers like McClellan that they must be subservient to their political overseers. While the politicians appear to have had their own reasons for keeping Stone imprisoned, George McClellan also seems to have had incentive for keeping Stone's case in limbo. McClellan certainly would have been anxious not to expose his own bungling in the Ball's Bluff debacle to the public scrutiny that would have accompanied court-martial proceedings. McClellan almost certainly knew that Charles Stone was no traitor, but for his own reasons, McClellan made no concrete effort toward getting Stone his day in court. Stone's attorneys, thwarted at every turn by an uncooperative War Department, finally enlisted the aid of Democratic Senator James McDougall from California. On April 15th, McDougall introduced a resolution in the Senate requesting information about the exact circumstances of Stone's arrest, 
the charges against him, and the precise reason no move had been made to try him for any offense. Besides accusing the War Department of ignoring Stone's rights under the Articles of War, McDougall also took aim at the Committee on the Conduct of the War and its Misuse of Power. Ben Wade bristled at McDougall's attack on the committee. Wade insisted that the committee had had nothing to do with Stone's arrest. It had merely investigated the matter and turned over its findings to the proper authorities. Wade said, quote, Sir, I am tired of these arguments in favor of traitors, end quote. And he wondered why people like McDougall never mentioned the outrages being inflicted on loyal Union men in the South by traitorous secessionists. McDougall's attack on the committee was just the beginning of an angry debate in the Senate in which Ben Wade and another committee member, Senator Zechariah Chandler, heatedly defended the committee. But finally, it was agreed that McDougall's resolution would be adopted by the Senate and sent directly to the president. The debate over McDougall's resolution also marked the start of increasing suspicion by Democrats regarding the Committee on the Conduct of the War's Motivations. Wade's ill-mannered performance in defense of the committee especially reinforced Democrats' suspicions. Democrats were beginning to see that much of the committee's work was designed to promote the radical Republicans' agenda for the waging of the war, particularly the preferment of officers with proper, i.e. Republican attitudes, and the distrust of generals exhibiting sympathy for conciliation or with Democratic leanings. After Abraham Lincoln received the Senate's resolution, he responded by saying that Stone had been arrested on his, quote, general authority, end quote, but that he had not been tried because of difficulties in lining up witnesses for a military trial. That was no doubt true, that there had been difficulty in lining up witnesses, and that information no doubt came to Lincoln through Stanton, since Stanton himself would have been well aware that the case against Stone would never stand up in a court-martial. Other than hearsay, there wasn't a scrap of direct evidence of treason, so the case would have certainly fallen apart under cross-examination. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says... See you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. 
We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. In further commenting on Stone's case, Lincoln promised that charges in a trial would, quote, be furnished to him in due season, end quote. This was also no doubt a talking point that Stanton provided for the president, since it's open to question just how much Lincoln knew about the particulars of the case. Lincoln, by his own admission a few years later, knew little of the circumstances surrounding Stone's arrest, since those events occurred around the same time Willie and Tad Lincoln were gravely ill with typhoid fever. While Tad recovered, Willie died on February 20th, so at the time of Stone's arrest, Lincoln, quite understandably, was overwhelmed with worry and grief, and his judgment was probably affected. He knew Stone from the time Stone planned the defense of Washington and directed the security for Lincoln's inauguration. The president knew that Stone was no traitor, and a single word from him could have freed the beleaguered officer. And yet Lincoln did nothing, as first the weeks and then the months went by, and Stone remained imprisoned. It seems hard to escape the conclusion that while worry and grief may have distracted Lincoln from the details of Stone's arrest, as time went on and Stone remained imprisoned, it seems the president had to have realized that partisan politics were behind the affair, and for his own reasons, he was content to let the matter play out. As has been pointed out, it was not Abraham Lincoln's finest hour. In July, Charles Stone finally caught a break when Senator McDougal inserted a section into a pending bill having to do with military pay and compensation. McDougal's insertion concerned officers under arrest. It said that the accused must be told the charges against him within eight days of arrest, and he was entitled to trial within 30 days. No names were mentioned, but the section contained the key language that it applied to, quote, all persons now under arrest and waiting trial, end quote. By this time, Stone had been imprisoned for five long months, and his political value as a pawn and a threat had waned. So with a minimum of fuss, the bill passed both houses of Congress on July 8th, and it was signed into law on July 17th. But Secretary of War Stanton, vindictive to the last, waited the full 30 days to acknowledge the new law, and it was only on August 16, 1862, that he ordered Stone set free. Returning to Washington after 189 days of imprisonment, Stone renewed his call for the charges against him to be made known and for a forum in which to refute them. He went to the White House and met with the president, but according to Stone, Lincoln said, quote, that if he told me all he knew about the matter, he should not tell me much, end quote. The new general-in-chief, Henry Halleck, also told Stone he knew nothing of the case and couldn't find out anything. Halleck also said he didn't have any orders assigning Stone to duty. In September, after the Union defeat at Second Manassas and the military scene in crisis, McClellan sought to have Stone appointed to command a division of the Army of the Potomac, but Secretary of War Stanton denied the request. And then, early in 1863, Joseph Hooker, the newest commander of the Army of the Potomac, wanted Stone to be his chief of staff, but Stanton said such an appointment was, quote, not considered in the interests of the service, end quote. 
At last, in late February 1863, more than a year after his arrest, the Committee on the Conduct of the War allowed Charles Stone to read the testimony taken in the Balls Bluff Inquiry, and then he was allowed to testify before the committee for the third time. Stone went down the list of allegations, demolishing them one by one, but the committee really wasn't interested in Stone's defense of his ruined reputation. By that point in time, they were much more interested in how his testimony might tarnish George McClellan's reputation, since with the young Napoleon finally gone from high command, his name was already being bandied about by Democrats as their best bet to run against Abraham Lincoln in the 1864 presidential election. So when Stone appeared before the committee for his third and final time, the radical Republican members were merely hoping that Stone's testimony might somehow discredit McClellan and damage Little Mac's political prospects. In May of 1863, Stone was finally allowed to return to the Army, serving with Major General Nathaniel Banks down in the Department of the Gulf. In July, Banks appointed Stone as his chief of staff. Stone served credibly in that position until he was relieved after the ill-fated Red River Expedition in April 1864. It seems Banks relieved Stone because of some issues unrelated to Stone's previous problems, but then Stone was stripped of his volunteer brigadier's commission and reverted to his regular army rank of colonel, and then he was not given a new set of orders for four months. And the reduction in rank and the delay in receiving new orders seems to have been the -the behind-the-scenes trickery of Charles Sumner, the spiteful senator who continued to harbor a grudge against Stone and who boasted to a friend in June 1864 that he was still scheming to scuttle Stone's career. In August of 1864, Ulysses S. Grant, who knew and respected Stone, did give him a brigade in the 5th Corps of the Army of the Potomac, But a month later, Stone, sick in body and broken in spirit, resigned his commission and left the army. Charles Stone had a remarkable post-war career. In 1870, he became chief of staff to the ruler of Egypt, a position he held for 13 years until the British took control of Egypt. And besides Stone, there were actually other former Union and Confederate officers that headed to Egypt after the war for employment. And we'll do an episode sometime, way down the road on the podcast, about those guys who served the Khedive of Egypt, trying to modernize that country's army. It's really a fascinating story. But anyway... But anyway, after his service in Egypt, Charles Stone returned to the United States and became the chief engineer on the Statue of Liberty project, within sight of where he was imprisoned in New York Harbor. He supervised the construction of the statue's base and pedestal on Bedloe's Island, and then oversaw the actual assembly of the statue, symbolically driving the first and last rivets himself, and serving as Grand Marshal at the dedication ceremony in October 1886. His great work accomplished, Stone collapsed in his office on January 19, 1887, and succumbed to pneumonia on January 24th. The vindictiveness of Charles Sumner and the callous partisanship of the Committee on the Conduct of the War ruined Stone's army career, but in the end, Charles Pomeroy Stone was laid to rest at West Point with full military honors. The United States Military Academy today remembers him through its annual Brigadier General Charles P. Stone Memorial Award for Excellence in Arabic Studies. 
So we didn't get into it, but in the interest of full disclosure, we should point out that Charles Stone didn't have the most agreeable personality in the world, and there were times when he was his own worst enemy. But still, having said that, he was neither inept nor a traitor, and he didn't deserve the persecution he received during the Civil War. Stone's case is instructive in that it shows the dark side of politics, even during the first year of the Civil War, when radical Republicans were content to use Charles Stone as a symbol, a symbol of what would happen to half-hearted Democratic generals whose conduct became suspect. means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation for this episode is Over Lincoln's Shoulder, The Committee on the Conduct of the War by Bruce Tapp. We'll refer to other activities of the Committee on the Conduct of the War at different times during the course of the podcast, but right now if you guys want to dig into a first-rate history of the Committee's doings during the war, then Over Lincoln's Shoulder is the book for you. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. As we wrap things up, we want to be sure to thank Rich B. from here in Colorado for his donation to the podcast this past week. And then we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used with the permission of Spiritwood Music, for which we thank them. And thanks to y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we head south for the Battle of Port Royal Sound. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.